Uh, with that being said, we're going to go into the scripture reading today. Um, our, our theme for this year for Advent is the light shines in the darkness. And we're going to start off uh, this series in the Old Testament and we'll move forward to the New Testament. Um, but we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 8, uh, 21 and go through uh, 9, 7. Now, some of you uh, definitely will remember uh, some of the the wording here from 9-7, but what I really want to do is I really want to also paint the context here, um, and I want to give a little bit of insight on the verses that come before it, and so that's why we're starting in 8-21. Actually, we were supposed to start in 8-5, verse but I cut out 16 verses, okay? So I'm going to try to make that up in my sermon, but here's the word of God. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, for you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. You don't get to hear those verses usually, right? This is what, <laughs> this is what you hear though, typically on Christmas. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Now, um, as I mentioned before, uh, we're celebrating Advent. Advent is just Latin uh, for arrival. That's all it means. Um, and so throughout history, the church takes this season to reflect upon the arrival of Santa Claus. No, right? Jesus Christ <laughs> coming into this world 2,000 years ago. And also to reflect a little bit on his second arrival, his second coming, when he will eradicate all sin and pain and suffering and restore all things. And for the season, as you can tell, we are going through this theme of the light shining in the darkness. And it's a theme that actually begins not in Isaiah 8, but in Genesis 1, right? When God said, let there be light. The existence of, of all life on earth is fueled by light from the sun. Um, sunlight gives life to plants and animals, which we eat and gives us light. And even the electricity in our home is fueled by fossil fuels, which are the remnants, right, of ancient plant and animal matter containing the energy from the sun. 
The Bible teaches us that this physical property of sunlight and the life-giving effect that it has, uh, the Bible uh, speaks much of this figuratively also. Uh, And the world knows this, even outside of Scripture, light and darkness are universal terms, aren't they? Right? Ever since the beginning of time, narratives have used light and darkness to describe uh, good and evil, right and wrong, uh, truth and falsity. And we see that in our scripture today. Uh, God is not just talking about physical light in the book of Isaiah here. He is also talking about these, these, these grand spiritual concepts of light and darkness. You see, Isaiah lived around 700 B.C., Uh, during which God's people were in tremendous spiritual and physical turmoil. There is perpetual war around them, and they themselves are entrenched in civil war. After uh, after Solomon's death, you see, uh, tensions uh, between his sons um, created division, which is why, you know, you you don't want to have multiple spouses and multiple children, Um, But what ended up happening was that the northern part of Israel split from the southern part of Israel. And God's people is waning and they are lost. And it is during this time that we step into here in Isaiah chapter 8 that God calls a uh, a prophet, Isaiah, to be his voice. And Isaiah receives a message from God to, to communicate this to God's people. And what God tells Isaiah is that dawn is coming. Uh, Dawn is the first appearance of light after the darkness. What is is this dawn? What is God communicating? Well, he's using the concept of light and darkness to communicate something about this world and himself, isn't he? How does this dawn come? How does this light come? Uh, 1985, uh, there was like this global concert. Some of you may have heard of it. It was called the Live Aid Concert. It was a global international collaboration uh, to uh, uh, raise awareness to the brokenness and suffering in the world and to rally people to help. And that's where the song, We Are the World, comes from, right? Uh, those, these, these lyrics, we are the world, we are the children, we are the ones who make a brighter day. And in this concert, you had many famous uh, musicians come together singing. And uh, there's this one singer, uh, Bob Dylan, and he just just looked miserable up there. Like, it was very clear, you know. And everyone asked him afterwards, you didn't seem like you wanted to be there. And they asked him about his opinion. And he just said very, 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 very sincerely, he said, "Uh, I felt very uncomfortable up there because... Humanity cannot save itself. That's what he said. Uh, He may have not known it, but he was referencing Isaiah 8, which is the message that the world cannot save itself. The world uh, cannot produce this light to create a brighter day. And that's the message of uh, Christmas. That is what the, what the message of Christmas is. Um, and that's the message of today's passage. You see, what's happening in our test, text is that humankind is looking to the earth and, and, and they just see darkness, right? They see distress. They experience anger and gloom. 
And, and what we see here, the more they look to the earth, the more they look to each other to find answers, actually, they are, uh, the, our, uh, chapter 8 ends, that they are thrust into thick darkness. Like, the darker it gets when you look for answers. That's why some people don't, they'd rather not even think about those things. Um, but there is a light to dawn, but it is not a light that can be developed. That's what the message of Christmas is. The Christmas says the, the world is dark and there is light, but you are not the light. We can't generate this kind of light. It says that it shines upon us, right? And so this light is beyond us. This light is really God intervening into the darkness, penetrating the darkness, erupting our situation, bringing light from the outside. Um, getting ahead of myself here. So before we examine the light, what I want us to do is take a look at the darkness, all right? Because, yes, the real biblical message of Christmas is a message of unparalleled hope, undying hope, unrelentless hope. But Christmas also tells you something about the world and about your own heart that is very sobering and humbling. And in our passage, God describes our experience of the darkness uh, in this world several ways. Uh, first, God says, in this world, you're going to experience distress and anguish. Right, distress is not really a word we use these days, but if you look up distress in the dictionary, it basically describes two kinds of scenarios. The first one is the anticipation of suffering. You see, if a ship is caught in the storm, the crew will send a distress alarm, signaling that they are uh, in a serious, uh, imminent potential danger, and they need immediate help, right? Uh, they're not going to be destroyed now, but uh, this distress, this emotional angst is about what is to come if something doesn't happen, right? So distress is not the worst case scenario already being experienced. It is the anticipation, the potentiality of possibly that scenario. Uh, for example, if you have financial distress, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're bankrupt. If you have, uh, you know, any kind of bodily distress, that doesn't equate to organ failure. If you have relational distress, does not equate to uh, full alienation. But they are the signs and painful experience of potential and imminent loss. So that's the first way we experience distress in this world, right? Whenever we see death or suffering or pain, we get anxious. And that alone is, is insufferable. Uh, another way we can experience distress here. Um, it, and I'm, I highlighted a little bit, we're going to go into a little bit more, it's, it's, it's the effect upon our emotions. That's where we get this word anguish. Um, commentator E.J. Young on, on this passage, he says, there is a distress of physical circumstances, right? Maybe your body has experienced physical distress. Um, and then he says, there is distress of the soul, distress of the soul. Um, maybe it is our anxious thoughts, as we wait uncertainly for uh, a job opportunity, um, marriage, children, um, medical results. Maybe it is uh, the emotional distress of depression. And this is highlighted by the word gloom in uh, 8.22 and 9.1. 
You see, in Psalm 42, uh, I have it here on the screen, David puts pen to his emotions of gloom and depression. He says this, uh, I look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. In this psalm, uh, if you understand um, David's life, he is running away from his uh, political enemies. And none of his previous friends, none of his previous allies are now standing with him. Right? They've seen that now he's on his way down, so they're like, we're jumping ship. No one is coming to his aid. No one even cares about what he is going through. And the emotional reality, as we see here in Psalm 142, for David is just as bad as the physical reality. Right? The fact that he has been betrayed by his closest friends is just as painful as if he, as if he just didn't live anymore. And I can't help uh, to wonder how many of us here have an enemy. Someone who is against us or, or someone we feel like is against us or, or maybe someone of our friends or our family members we feel like uh, they have not come to our aid. They have not given us the support that we've needed and we have these bitter feelings and these resentment feelings reserved for enemies. In 821, uh, the other darkness God says we will experience in this world, he says, is hunger and anger. In Isaiah's context, hunger means two things, physical hunger and spiritual hunger, uh, because, you know, many of us, we may not be physically hungry, um, but we're still angry, <laughs> right? Which means that there is a deeper spiritual hunger underneath us. Something else making you angry. Josh uh, Lemayan is a pastor in Nairobi, and he says this about anger. He says, Our anger reveals to us what is precious to us, what we believe we absolutely need, what we believe we cannot live without, what we believe we will die without. Uh, Jen and I were driving uh, the other day, uh, we want to take Luke to this um, this Discovery Museum. And, um, you know, uh, she asked, hey, can we run an errand on our way there? And obviously I'm like, <laughs> like we're late. I'm thinking about Luke's nap. I'm thinking it's lunchtime, right? Um, I'm getting a little angry. So we, we stop by and run an errand. We're taking a passport photo for Luke. And, uh, you know, Jen's like, just five minutes, just five minutes. All right, go there. Takes about 30 minutes, right? Um, I'm not physically hungry, right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm fine, but I'm getting angry. I'm starting to get angry. There's something deeper underneath, and what is that? What is it that I want? Control, right? I have my day planned out. You didn't run this by me. Um, how dare you inconvenience me and inconvenience the whole family, right? <laughs> We're going to be so late to this Discovery Museum. What will ever happen to Luke? You see, when we get angry, it reveals what we want. Maybe that's affection and praise, you know? You feel like you do so much for people, um, and, and you're just angry, though, as you're, as you're helping them, <laughs> you know? Um, maybe it's security or comfort. Maybe you love being comfortable, man. When you think about what you want to do when you get home from work, when you think about what you want to do on a Saturday morning, you know, and someone asks you if you can help them, you're like, oh, you know, 
You know, I'm busy. <laughs> you know, can't you see I'm watching? Uh, you know, my fourth football game. Right? Uh, we get angry when people get in the way of what we want. Uh, John Was uh, John Oswald. He writes a commentary on Isaiah and, and on this specific verse of how we get angry. He says, um, our rage vents itself on every object which crosses our path, but especially toward those who are deemed in some way able to relieve the problems but unwilling to do so. Eventually, it will work itself up to God. First, it says he is the problem, she is the problem. Then it says, God, why did you allow this problem? See, all our anger issues, they, they, are, they are emotional disagreements with God and how we believe our life should go. And when we believe we know better than God, by getting angry at God, what, what Isaiah is telling us is that that is a very dark place to be. That leads to darkness. 8.22 says that when this happens, we are not only in darkness, but we get thrust into a thick darkness. Now, what is the difference between being in darkness and being in thick darkness? You know, is this just a hyperbole? Um, I don't think so. I think there's a very specific difference that Scripture is teaching us, the difference between darkness and thick darkness, and that is this, right? I didn't read this. this is the, these are the verses I cut out, uh, just to make it a little bit shorter. But before 821 in our passage, when they're experiencing, the people of God are experiencing this darkness, it says that they're taking counsel together. They're trying to figure out how to solve this darkness. And it even says that some are turning to mysticism. A lot of people try that today, don't they? Right? They go to astrology. Uh, people still ask, you know, me, like, what's, what's your sign? What's your sign? I'm like, I don't, I don't know, like, hungry? You know, more? That's what, that's what Luke tells me. Um, I'm a cancer, by the way. I had to figure it out because I get it asked so much. And I was like, I'm not looking at this stuff no more. <laughs> but, uh, um, we, I mean, there are, there are, I mean, if you look at it, if you look at the podcasts and, and, and documentaries, actually, these spiritual documentaries, these spiritual podcasts of mediums and channelers are like rising up. Movies about exorcism and spoop, supernatural possession. People are trying to figure out, they're trying to find a reason for the darkness. Now, in the New Testament, we are told that uh, by Paul that the Greeks how they try to understand the brokenness and the darkness in this world is they, they, they sought wisdom. The Greeks weren't big on mysticism. And they weren't big on politics either. They were big on the intellect. They were big on the mind. They educated themselves and they said, if we can just figure out logically and rationally and reasonably what is the problem and how to succeed as a uh, human race, then we can eliminate darkness. Right? They're trying to solve their darkness philosophically, psychologically, sociologically. But the Jews of Jesus' time weren't like that. The Jews were not big on philosophy. They were big on politics. They didn't say, let's sit around and talk and discuss, right? Let's, let's sit around and talk and discuss how we can all do this together. No, the Jews, they really believed that they needed a political leader, right? The Rome is oppressing them. There's nothing to talk about. We, need, we have a leadership vacuum right now. We need someone to overthrow our oppressors and give us independence. Who can rally the forces? Who can marshal the people? Who can set the vision and lead us out of the darkness? It's interesting, isn't it? 
you read the news, it's, it's the, all the same stuff, isn't it? Mysticism, philosophy, politics. This is what people turn to when they are trying to make sense of the darkness, to find meaning in the darkness. Uh, philosopher Bertrand Russell, um, he was a very special philosopher uh, because he recognized the limitations of philosophy. He said, all of our science, all of our reason, he says, will never be able to answer three things. Those three questions are what the purpose of life is, how human beings got into the mess that we're in, and three, how we can get out of it. That's what Bertrand Russell said. In other words, what he's saying is that the world understands the problems and analyzes them incessantly and understands them extremely well, but we cannot find the solution. That is what he is saying. We've been looking for them for five or six millennia now, and, and, and I don't know. Actually, I think things are getting worse, right? Anxiety is skyrocketing. Depression is skyrocketing. And so this is the first half message of Christmas. Uh, the human uh, world is a dark place with physical and emotional distress. And the more you look for solutions, what Isaiah is saying, the more actually you look for a solution, that's actually when it gets really dark because you realize, oh my goodness, it's not the fact that I haven't spent more time reading. It's not the fact that I, we haven't spent more time, uh, you know, uh, figuring this out. It's the fact that this is, this is our lot. Oswald says, those who depend upon earth for solutions to the earth's problems only compound their darkness. For the darkness itself can never produce light. Without a transcendent perspective on our affairs, we plunge ourselves into distress, anger, and gloom. Light for our darkness must come from outside of ourselves if it is to come at all. And this brings us to the second half message of Christmas, Christmas. And our last point, um, first, Christmas, uh, the real biblical Christmas is not about sentimentality, all right? Um, and this is coming from a person who loves Christmas and sentimentality, okay? Uh, my family brings out the Christmas tree right after Thanksgiving, okay? Um, we put up Christmas lights. I, get, I always get the gingerbread chai latte at Starbucks. I can't, I love it. I love the spirit of Christmas, but that is very far from the historical and biblical event of Christmas, right? Real biblical Christmas is not just about the commercialization of Christmas lights and Christmas gifts and Christmas songs and Christmas fellowship and Christmas joy. No, all of that, all of that is representative of a substantive light. You see, all of that is representative of a substantive gift the gift of God's Son. All of that is representative of a substantive song that God has given us, a substantive fellowship, a substantive joy. You see, the essence of Christmas nostalgia goes far deeper than commercialized childhood memories. You see, some of us here are trying to deal with the darkness of this world during this season with the commercialization of Christmas, right? And it's really just trying to deal with the darkness of this world outside of God. 
But what you come to realize is the more you try, the more it makes things darker. And there are some of us here who are Christian, who, t- who actually try to deal with our problems in a non-Christian way. What does that mean? Well, it means to deal with the darkness in this world outside of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And there are two ways, there are two ways that even Christians can deal with the darkness. And that is, first, you try to deny it. Just try to deny it, right? Um, It's like when I was playing basketball, and I was like, ah, I feel some pain. And then, you know, my friend's like, dude, you're getting old. No, that can't be it. That That can't be it. I need to stretch more. You know, I need to get back into it. And then, you know, a couple months later, I pop an Achilles. <laughs> you can live in denial. <laughs> we can say things aren't that dark, right? The country isn't so bad. The world isn't so bad. I can find a place that doesn't have any darkness. Marriage isn't that hard. Family and raising kids, that can't be that hard, Right? Or I don't know why you're so angry at me. My pride isn't so bad. My anger isn't so bad. I don't have control issues. You have the choice to choose, right? We can eat Asian or Asian. (laughs) In other words, we deny the darkness in the world and in our lives, and when we do that, we become less in tune with reality. And we don't know what to do when we experience real darkness. And it's coming. It's coming for all of us. And what our culture teaches us is, 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 hey, chin up. Suck it up. Right? Weak people don't cry. Tough it out. But the pain bleeds out of everyone. And we deny the darkness, and we're trying to deny the bleeding, but we can't stop it. And the other way to deal with the darkness in this world and outside of who Christ is and what he's already done is to not just deny, but to go the other direction, to see the darkness and say, there's nothing we can do, right? It's all distress. It's all gloom. There's no point in life. There's no meaning in trying to love, to trying to do good. But deep down, we know that's not true. We're craving for heroes. We're craving for change. We are craving for hope. And deep down, we are doing everything we can to fight and push back the darkness. But in Isaiah 9, God tells us there is a third way. You don't have to deny it. You don't have to be overwhelmed by it. God says, I will send a son, right? into the world to put an end to the darkness once and for all. And he's going to do this by not demolishing humanity and judging humanity. He will do this by being judged for us on the cross for our sins and taking the punishment, which is death. And we know from the New Testament that Jesus rose from the grave and is seated at the right hand of God the Father and he is the ruler of all rulers. And one day he is going to put the darkness under his feet once and for all. 
in community group uh, this past week, you know, um, I was talking to someone, and um, I like to just throw out feelers sometimes and see how they're doing. But, uh, you know, I, was, I had a long week, and I, I was talking to this person. I said, I said, you know, X, I said, What's, what is the point of life? What is the point of life? And uh, this person said, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yes, Jesus is ruling. And he will one day put all the darkness under his feet. Until then, what is our purpose? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To bring as many people into the light so that they may glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see, a Christian goes to the real biblical historical message of Christmas and they rehearse it to themselves, you know? You know, when you have a meeting, you rehearse your lines. When you have a presentation, you rehearse your script. As Christians, we have to rehearse our own script, our own narrative, that this is true and no matter what happens to us, our health is secure. Our family is secure. Our wealth is secure. Our dreams are secure. Our hope and identity and success are secure. There is darkness, but the light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, where Jesus is right now, shines in the darkness, and we have real comfort. It's not, you know, it's not a, it's not a fluff, you know? It's not a distraction. It is a real hope. That's the message of Christmas. As I close, I want to I point out this in the text here. In 9.1, God says that the light will come into Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee. Those are some strange cities that God references, huh? You know, he doesn't say Jerusalem, does he? He doesn't say Hebron. He doesn't say Bethel. He says these very, very obscure um, cities, Zebulun, Naphtali, and Galilee. Why, why, why is God telling this to Isaiah? Well, when you read your Old Testament, you, you read that Zebulun and Naphtali were not glorious places. Like, no one wanted to live there. It's like, where are you from? I'm from Naphtali. They're like, oh, man, <laughs> boy, you know, that's rough. The text says that Zebulun and Naphtali were not glorious places, and they were places that were looked upon with contempt. People look down upon those cities. The Hebrew actually says, not contempt, it says last. Zebulun and Naphtali were the, the last cities, the worst cities. And Galilee was in Nazareth where Jesus grew up and came from. And there was a common saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? That's when, when people said, oh, the, 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 the savior of the world is here. Where is he from? He's from Nazareth, <laughs> Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was a poor and broken town that was near the land of the Gentiles, as we see in our text here, which is another way of saying that Nazareth, Nazareth was spiritually lost and without hope. They're godless. Nothing good can happen there. So I was thinking about this text, and I was praying up through it and reflecting upon it. I thought, man, that's, that's sort of what people say about the Bay Area, isn't it? Oh, man, the Bay Area, that godless place of the Gentiles, what, what good can happen there? 
And many of you know, I was born and raised in the Bay Area. And I was on the track of the rat race of life. Uh, but I can testify that I myself was living in the darkness. And the more I tried to make sense of the darkness outside of God, the darker uh, that darkness became. And eventually it just led to a, a tremendous depression, just tremendous depression. Uh, by the grace of God, I was introduced to Jesus. And from that moment, the darkness lifted and I, and I could see. Uh, I still experience the darkness of this world and in, in my life, but it never gets as dark as it used to be because I know what the truth is. I know that where the light is. I know where the hope is to be found. And uh, because of this profound transformation in my heart, uh, the, the one singular way God called me uh, towards pastoral ministry was actually to do gospel ministry in the Bay Area. Uh, my call to ministry was very, very narrow. It was, it was hand in hand with doing gospel ministry in the Bay Area. And so as I, as I um, you know, was praying about this, that God, by God's grace, by God's will one day, that somehow, whether it was as a full-time pastor or maybe I just had a, a uh, sort of a regular job and I was a, a regular member serving in a church like you, that I would be doing that in the Bay, right? Like I wasn't going to leave the Bay to be a pastor somewhere else because... Um, I saw it. No, it was very uniquely tied to doing gospel ministry in the Bay, my life, because I myself had lived in the darkness here. I myself had experienced the light, and I knew that this was the hope that this area needed. And so when Jen and I were praying about where to plant a church in the Bay Area, right, there, there are many cities that came across our plate. Uh, our denomination threw some cities on our plate. Um, our friends threw some cities on our plate. But we realized that these cities that, that were coming across our plate, they already had plenty of churches, you know? And they already had a lot of new church plants happening in that place. So as we, as we started to pray more, as we started to think more, we realized that from about Fremont to Oakland, there wasn't much going on in spirituality, right? From Fremont to Oakland, that's a lot of people. And we realized, we're like, what's this city, Hayward? Never heard of Hayward, Right? I didn't know there was a city here. We realized there were, actually, at that point, when we planned this church four years ago, there were no new church plants within 10 years in Hayward. So a lot of people are wondering, where are we going to plant? They're waiting for the news. And as more and more Jen and I prayed about it, our hearts developed, actually, for Hayward. And finally, you know, we, we sent an email out, and we told everyone, God has called us to plant in Hayward, and, and, and we had, you know, a, a spectrum of responses. One of them was like, that makes a lot of sense. Hayward needs more churches. But another response we heard was, Hayward? Can anything good come out of Hayward? <laughs> and that's when I knew God was calling us to plant a church in Hayward. Because that's how God works. God works in the unlikeliest and most unexpected places in order that you and I may know that he did it, right? The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, in the latter time, God will make glorious. Church, the fact that God prophesies that his light will come into humble places and humble people and humble families 
means that the message of Christmas, the essence of Christmas is that God is going to bring light in areas that you have given hope on. In areas that you wouldn't even know how that light is going to shine. And that's why Christianity is so beautiful. Because God goes out to the people, to the places and to the areas that the world has given up on. That you have given up on. The world says great things don't happen in broken places. Great things don't happen in broken marriages and broken relationships and broken families. But God makes sure that his son comes as a little infant, helpless and vulnerable, to poor parents, to an unwed mother, into a feeding trough, into a smelly barn, in a broken place like Nazareth. And the only people invited to his birthday party were shepherds. Who are the shepherds? They were not educated. They were not powerful. They were not wealthy. They weren't even clean. They wouldn't have even made the dress code for some of our parties. They are not well-spoken. They are so little respected that a testimony of a shepherd was not even admissible evidence in court. Nobody regarded the shepherds. There is nothing spectacular about their work. They are humble farmers but they are faithful and they care for their sheep. And they are the ones who are invited to Jesus' party. Why does God do this, church? Because God is a God, a redemption of broken people, of broken places, and broken times. He takes what is poor and makes it rich he takes what is lost and makes it found. He takes what is broken and makes it holy. He takes what is godless and makes it godly. He takes what is hopeless and makes it hopeful. He takes what is last and makes it first. He takes what is dark and makes it light. Why would God do this? So that every Christmas time, you and I would know that above everything else, Christmas is not about feel-good sentiment. It is about true hope, true security, true comfort. And no darkness, not in this world and not in your life, is beyond the redemptive power and will and promise of God. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. God, you have multiplied and increased our joy. So we rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And we come here during the season of Advent. And we see how the world is trying to, to make sense and to deal with the brokenness of life. With sentimentality. With emotions that have no substance. We see where they got it from. And that is the real message of Christmas. The real message of light and darkness. Of gifts 
to the needy, of fellowship and loneliness, and rest in an exhausting world. We see that it's find, found in Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, who dies for our sins, who justifies us, makes us righteous, saves us, not on what we can do, not what we can do in our accomplishments, not what we can do in our righteous and moral efforts. But because all of us are fallen and all of us are the same, it's, we are saved purely in the work in the life and the death and resurrection of Christ. And as we rehearse this message to ourselves, as we rehearse this message to each other, we are reminded of the true light. We are reminded of the true hope. We are reminded of the true goal, which is eternity. That which you have secured, life beyond death. And so we rejoice today. And I, 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 I don't know what every single person is experiencing, but you do, as our text says, are the uh, wonderful counselor. And you can counsel every single one of us and give us spiritual peace and spiritual grace and spiritual joy and spiritual hope. In Jesus' name, amen.